Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by MailChimp, which celebrates creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. And what we'd like to talk about today is what design sounds like, our one-day symposium on sound and visual culture. The lineup for this symposium is going to include a curator from MoMA, two veterans of SoundCloud, and uh, the brothers Tobias and Sasha Frere-Jones. Also presenting our design observer regulars Adrian Shaughnessy, Stephen Heller, and Debbie Millman. Debbie's going to record a live version of her podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman, at the symposium. And Michael and I will wrap things up. It's happening this coming Saturday, February 21st, at the School of Visual Arts Theater, the Silas Theater, in New York City. Tickets are free, but unfortunately, we're actually sold out. But don't despair. If you're not going to be there, you can follow along on Twitter using the hashtag WDSL. So, Jessica, why are we doing this symposium? Well, we've never done one before, and we've thought about it for a good long time. I have to say, it started with really thinking about Debbie Millman's podcast, which has been going on now for 10 years. And more recently, there have been numerous podcasts by visual people, people who you would think would really want to communicate what they do and think about visually or primarily visually. But in fact, there's something kind of interesting that happens when you can't see the thing the person's talking about. And it kind of obliges you to imagine it and see it for yourself in terms of your own experience and your own context. So while that's how it started, it's really emerged from there to become much more, I think, diverse. We started to think about what it really meant in a world where previously we might have designed or thought about design in terms of the relationship between words and pictures. Now, given the degree to which we're all online all the time and communicating from different places, that actually sound plays a very interesting role in terms of the visual cue. Yeah, and, and always has, really. I think the, um, uh, the connection between uh, what things look like and how they sound, it's really just a way of kind of engaging everyone's senses. And, I, I've, and in addition, I've always thought that um, it's a really interesting exercise to talk about design without reverting to images. I've, uh, um, you know, as an experiment that actually more or less worked out when I, I published a few years ago a book of essays I had written, many of which were done originally for Design Observer and were illustrated when they were online, I made a call just to see whether or not we could do the book without any pictures at all. And in fact, there are no pictures in this book about design. And um, to me, it just, I think, puts a little bit of... Uh, uh, interesting pressure on the person doing the talking or the writing to think about how design is working, whether it's visual design or experiential design or any other kind of design. And it also, I think, um, invites the listener to kind of create their own images in their mind and in doing so adds an additional level of depth, perhaps. I think that's true, Michael. And also, I mean, I remember I'm old enough to remember that uh, in the 80s when the first Sony Walkman came out and people would walk around with these giant electronic things strapped to their bodies, and they really were large. Uh, but th- there was something that really started to happen then and, of course, has continued, which is that you can walk through life making your own soundtrack. So not just sound but music, the degree to which music in companion with your imagination starts to conjure images and create its own kind of visual narrative mm-hmm. is something that I think really goes beyond design. And and I think that as we thought about that, the conference started to become 
uh, curatorially and contextually wider in terms of the kinds of things we could represent. So, for example, we've got Alexander Chen, who's a, an artist and a musician, who's done this really amazing project um, uh, using the New York City subway system and sort of playing it like a string instrument. Um, it was written up in, in a lot of places, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Wired, uh, and at the same time also in New York, although not all of our presenters are from New York. Uh, Juliet Kinchin at the Museum of Modern Art has this wonderful exhibit uh, that um, goes on till next November um, called Making Music Modern, Design for Ear and Eye. She really talks about in this show art forms that share certain aesthetics and the affinities between things like harmony and interaction and improvisation uh, during the 20th century using incredible objects and artifacts in MoMA's collection to do so. You know, I'm also really looking forward to uh, hearing from uh, Tobias Frere-Jones and Sasha Frere-Jones. Uh, uh, most of our listeners will know Tobias Frere-Jones as a legendary typeface designer. And uh, many of our listeners will also know uh, the name Sasha Frere-Jones as a longtime critic of pop music for The New Yorker. R- really interesting uh, pairing, partly because as well, um, I've heard Tobias talk about typefaces, and sometimes when he's trying to describe what he would call the ineffable quality of a typeface, we really don't have language to describe that, you know, once you get beyond the technical terms of serifs and uh, crossbars and things like that, uh, you really, he'll say, oh, this needs to feel more legato, or this needs to feel more staccato, and we revert to, uh, you know, the language of sound sometimes when we're talking about visual things. And I think we have also, you know, there are a number of people who are presenting um, who are going to talk about sound in, in, in a sort of theatrical sense. Uh, Yoon Jin Cho is a sound designer who teaches um, at, I think, Louisiana State University, uh, who comes out of the th- a theater background. Uh, Nick Sowers is a sound architect based in San Francisco, who will be uh, showing his work and talking about the overlap between space and sound. And, and I think for visual thinkers, which is really primarily what our audience at Design Observer is made up of, I think we will see and discuss together what it means to design something that maybe you hear before you see. I even find in talking about conventional graphic design, I uh, often rely on metaphors that are based more on sound or music. And maybe this is because I spent so long in my early career working for a uh, an Italian designer, Massimo Vignelli, who was very expressive and who was uh, legendary for like giving design instructions along the line of, uh, you know, if you with this thing to make it really work, it's got to be like, you know, it's got to like, you know, and, be, and like sort of just make these sound effects with his mouth. That actually, um, once he worked there for a while, you knew exactly what he was talking about. Oh, you mean, um, you know, 236 point Bodoni bold in large to go across, you know. Um, and I find that I'll do the same thing. I'll be talking about a, uh, you know, a series of pages in a book, let's say, and I'll say, oh, right now this is going too much like, mm, uh, 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 uh. and it really needs to be more like, you know, syncopated rather than kind of steady state. It's nice and, to think um, of Massimo Vignelli beatboxing. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice image. The human for beatbox, that. exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, he was ahead of his time as far as that goes. My experience with um, with students too is that they're very um, uh, agnostic on the subject of the ways they approach problems, and to the degree that technology makes the kind of slippage between word and picture and sound uh, easier, perhaps than it was when I was a student. It's interesting to see what they do in the studio and. 
my undergrads at Yale work with a collection uh, that is a, a series of 4,500 first-person video testimonies of Holocaust survivors. Now, mm. given that this is 2015, uh, none of these people are alive anymore. And so those stories they tell are really incredibly powerful. And these students, in engaging with those stories, are the ones who bring the story forward. And so they have to really sit and watch these very long video testimonies from the 70s and, and early 80s, some of them, with not great lighting and not great production values. And they have to understand how to interpret what is not only voice, but a quite emotional story. And a number of years ago, I worked with a former grad student of mine and her husband, who is a composer. And uh, I think it was about a year ago, I gave a presentation. Uh, it was the, a big anniversary for this archive. And I was the only presenter who showed work because it was a lot of scholars talking about their research. And it wasn't the projects themselves that were so compelling. It was the sound track, the actual music that this composer had given me, which in conjunction with these visual products was so moving that I'm still getting email about it from scholars who want to use that in their presentations. And so while the work was great and the visual impact was obviously significant, it was really the music that became the thing that helped weave it all together and make it really memorable. The provocation of music or sound as subject matter for designers is really an interesting one. You know, you have um, you know the whole field of record packaging going back for years and years and years, and essentially each time a designer is just forced to figure out a way to interpret music or sound that's on a on a record album or on a recording and figure out a way to package it and make it visual so it appeals to someone. Back when in a retail store today, perhaps shopping online, encountering things that way, the translation of that to music videos and things like that. And I think um, I, too, have been really impressed at the uh, fluency of students that I've worked with at working across those mediums, even without being asked to. They will. I, for years, gave this assignment where I would ask designers to... Um, do something for 100 days in a row. And uh, every year I gave it, some people would always choose kind of a musical prompt to kind of like get them going. I remember uh, a few years ago, a then student, uh, Neil Donnelly, did an assignment where every day he listened to uh, Brian Eno's song, Here Come the Warm Jets. And while that song was playing, he would do a design that would respond to it that had to be completed as the song was finished. And um, as sort of a 100-day experience from the first listen to the 100th, watching him sort of just work through you know, his discoveries that he made with that song, his growing boredom and frustration with the song, uh, kind of hearing it anew uh, after he thought he had heard it so many times he never wanted to hear it again, and how all that kind of got expressed visually was really amazing. Uh, and another example, same assignment, was a, a student named Eli Kim who did this uh, video that became notorious, uh, or legendary, let's say. Um, I remember on, the, on day one I said, um, Eli, what's your idea? And he says, I'm just going to dance to a piece of music every day for 100 days. And um, But it wasn't Brian Eno. It was not. No, I don't think it wasn't Brian Eno. <laughs> just were just checking. A, I mean, the, uh, uh, Eli had, has fantastic taste in music. And he's a really good dancer. Fantastic dancer. Filmed himself in a different setting every day, dancing to a snatch of music. and uh, But again, it sort of is, um, you know, how we as a designer interpret music and, you know, the genius of that uh, film, which is like uh, uh, Neil's project online right now. We'll provide the URLs on uh, at Design Observer. Uh, the genius of that film wasn't just his dancing, which is fantastic, but it's also 
the way he was able to sequence the songs, the way he was able to edit in and out of various songs, the way he was able to, as a visual designer, consider the contrast and the surprise you would get as one setting changed to another setting changed to another setting. So I think, uh, it, in a way, sound uh, has a capacity to bring out the best in all of us. So we're looking forward to seeing many of you on the 21st in New York at the Silas Theater at the School of Visual Arts for What Design Sounds Like, our one-day-long symposium on design and sound. Uh, for those of you who can't come, you can follow along on Twitter with our hashtag, WDSL. Uh, and there will be a number of interesting presentations. We also have some very interesting uh, sponsors for this conference, uh, one of which is Lalo, a Swedish design firm and the world's leading provider of intimate lifestyle products. New from Lalo is the Siri 2, a vibrator that reacts to music or to a partner's voice. And this is actually quite interesting, uh, Michael. You know that um, this is the larger field of design of these lifestyle products. It started to... to uh, look very closely at relationships that are not in the same room. I didn't know if you knew this, because I certainly didn't know this, but the field itself is called teledildonics. That's a fantastic name. The word itself was actually coined by Ted Nelson, the first person who ever used the word hypertext. He's a sociologist. Say, say, so, say, the, say, the word, say that word again. It's beautiful. Teledildonics. It's fantastic. That is the word. It's a wonderful word. So you think about it, the idea that we, uh, we text from different places, we podcast from different places, why wouldn't we have intimate relationships from different places. That's where the Siri 2 comes in, a vibrator that reacts to music or to a partner's voice. You can learn more at their website, lelo.com. That's L-E-L-O, lelo.com. You know, right before um, you spoke, we were talking about the uh, work that students have done in both our classes. And sometimes it does break through to bigger audiences uh, online or elsewhere. Um, but some of the greatest things I've seen I think are sadly just destined to um, remain in students' portfolios or on their own websites and not seen quite enough or uh, in file cabinets at the schools and colleges and universities from which they graduated. And often the physical manifestation, the physical form that this work takes is so striking and well-conceived that no kind of virtual representation of it can really do it justice. And so, um, you know, one of the things you and I have both talked about for a while is, is there some way to get, you know, student work really well-considered, well-resolved, uh, ambitious student work out to a wider public? And I think we've come up with an interesting way to do it. We have, and it's it's mostly these these projects that students do traditionally tend to f fall into uh, the the form of a book, which is really alive and well. And we had a wonderful post on Design Observer by a librarian at Yale, uh, curator Tim Young, last week about why books matter. And uh, I sh I just have to say that that post got tweeted almost 300 times about books, real books, normal books, not Kindle books, not audiobooks, real physical books. And that's where we uh, started with this project that we just launched this week called The Thesis Book Project. You can find it online at thesisbookproject.com. It's a very simple idea, uh, which is based on the fact that more and more students are availing themselves in their final degree project 
of companies that produce books on demand. And one of those companies is Blurb, uh, based in San Francisco. They're also in London, and they print in 60 countries, which allowed us to really open up this idea of what happens to the book after it's presented and the student graduates. And so the thesis book project is just that. It's a design observer initiative with Blurb to look at Students who make final books before they graduate. They can be at the master's level or the the undergraduate level. Uh, Sometimes they're called a thesis book. That's why we've coined this term. Uh, In Europe, I think sometimes they call them a degree book. But the idea is that these books that represent countless hours and uh, really a great deal of hard-earned expertise in a subject are then shared with our audience on Design Observer. Uh, We've invited an international jury of designers who are primarily book designers, but also educators to look at this work. And the idea is when we get down to the finalists to bring some of them forward and have them tell us what they learned and what they believe. And really it's a celebration of the student, but also it raises this idea of authorship, of originality. The same kind of originality that Neil Donnelly and Neil Kim had, that you see these students, they're not just doing what they're being told to do. They're doing what they want to do. And they're doing it in incredibly new and innovative ways. They're pushing the book. They're pushing each other. They're pushing themselves. And they're doing it in a way that I think is designed to reach other audiences. You know, I think some students will just kind of like bear down and just do something that really is a perfectly private thing that's just for them. But I think, um, you know, design is inherently kind of a social activity. And the idea that the work can transcend the particular assignment, the particular institution that the student is going to, the uh, the instructor, the teacher, the classroom, the year it was done, to reach a broader audience, I think is um, a really interesting sort of uh, element to introduce to the whole process. And I think that this project actually is meant just to introduce that element and just in a way see what will happen once it's uh, in play. That's such a good point. It is a social thing. And, and even though they're working separately and hard and, uh, and very deeply in terms of uh, becoming the experts of the subjects that they choose to write about and make books about, I think these things deserve to be shared, And, and yeah. um, which is not to say that uh, we aren't going to get as many copies as we can and put them into libraries so future people can see them. But the, the other payoff, and this is an economic conceit as much as a social one, is that if these books are being celebrated online and we are discussing them with the student guiding us through their work, anybody can buy them. And all they have to do is push a button and print the book and blurb prints the book. And that person who wants the book is financing that student's printing of the book. And the student gets the money. So it's an interesting kind of social experiment. It's an economic experiment. It's a bibliographic experiment. It's an educational experiment. And we hope that many students from all over the world will uh, look and think about making their books and sharing them with us. That's very exciting. And, um, you know, I know that you did a thesis book when you were in school. Do you remember it? Oh, Lordy, I walked right into that one, didn't I? (laughs) I did. And... um, The book uh, is 194 pages. It's on the history of the square, which uh, when I came out with a book on circular charts about 15 years later prompted my father to ask me if I was already working on the book on triangles, <laughs> which is I'm not working on a book on triangles. The trilogy, yeah. Um, but I was really interested in the, at the time in the fact that um, being a graphic designer at Yale uh, in the 80s uh, was very much uh, under the kind of auspices of a very serious faculty who had been trained primarily in Switzerland, where the grid was everything, where all the exercises were done on an 8 by 8 inch square. And I set out to look at why squares were interesting. 
And Albers, uh, Joseph Albers, famous for his work with squares. Right, uh, who had started the program at Yale, and so this was something that was really very deep in the, in the Yale DNA at that time. Um, no, in fact, my, um, my thesis is not beautifully designed. It is... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Intentionally so? Because uh, some uh, kind of anti-beauty aesthetic you're exploring? Or uh, uh, are you confessing to some sort of... Uh... I'm, I'm not only confessing, <laughs> I'm going to read to you what my advisor said about my thesis, because my advisor was Paul Rand. <laughs> and I found the thesis earlier today, when I knew we would be discussing the thesis book project, having a feeling, a very strong sensation that you might be asking these questions. So this is what Paul Rand had to say about my thesis. Quote, With what little time I've had to read Jessica's thesis, I have to conclude that even the table of contents is impressive. That's good. I Very know, promising. It, good, it begins good. well. Good just table wait, of just contents. Wait. Excellent. Just wait. Carry on. Carry on. Okay. <laughs> the form, I'm afraid, does not match the content. Oh. The typography leans on the decorative side. Oh. I don't quite see what the organizing principle is. I regret that I was unable to see this presentation before, before is underlined, it was completed. <laughs> Students everywhere will, re will recognize this, the sort of the last 46 hours when I was trying to bind it myself. Nevertheless, he writes, the quality of the content deserves commendation. Paul Rand. Oh, okay. There you go. That's not so bad. Yes, I've lived my life trying to... Live, live up to those, uh, those kind words. That's not so bad. Now, what, not meeting the content. This whole decorative thing, was it, what typeface was it in? Some decorative typeface that Mr. Well, Rand? No it, uh... was, no, it was, I think it was in, uh, oh God, I should know this. I know that the footnotes were in Franklin Gothic, mm -hmm. and I think the main body text was in Adobe Garamond. Mm, hmm. And then, then you had some Scotch rules or little uh, geegaws or stuff. There were not. There were no Scotch <laughs> rules, and the whole thing was xeroxed. And uh, yeah, it's 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 really big and really boring. And uh, I can say from experience, having been teaching for many years, uh, and Yale has this marvelous tradition of thesis books that go back to when Albert started the program in 1950. There are some pretty magnificent things to be to be seen out there. So. Um, those students are leading by example, and that's um, that's really something to be celebrated. Not my my thesis in particular, perhaps deserves to be on a shelf, not looked at. Jessica, the more you talk about this book, um, I'm determined to sort of see whether Paul Rand was right or wrong with his review. I, Let's just assume he was right. <laughs> well, I, I dare you to <laughs> post it on designobserver.com for the world to see. Oh, are you lordy. up for that? Oh lordy, I'm I you know I I'm up for it because I how can I be a wimp and not take the challenge but I will also probably never show my face in public again. <laughs> I can't wait. Let's just say there was a lot of room for improvement in my career after that. Good, point it has improved. Graduated. It has improved. So I can't wait I to see. I certainly hope so. Um, but uh, if uh, Paul Rand is a figure that you're interested in, you will be interested to learn that a major exhibition on his work is going to be opening right after our symposium at the Museum of the City of New York. It is called Everything in Design, the Work of Paul Rand. It is um, a major show of his work, as I said. And to my knowledge, unless I'm getting this wrong, I think it's uh, truly the first major uh, one-person show uh, retrospective of a graphic designer at a New York museum that I can remember. I can't remember another one. It opens on February 25th. It goes to July 19th. And it's, um, from what I've seen of it, it's really a, um, a remarkable tour de force and uh, lots of uh, points of inspiration to be found for anyone who's looking. And why now? Why are they doing a ranch show now, Michael? Well, I mean, the proximate cause is that 
We are uh, in the year that is the 100th anniversary of his birth. That uh, was last year. Last year, but you know, he was born in uh, August, a uh, hundred years right. ago, and right. so you know, given that it could be a year-long celebration, so that's 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 one reason I think, uh, you know, and as part of that, Chronicle Books reissued an edition of Rand's first book, uh, Thoughts on Design, with a lovely uh, introduction by you. In fact, when I was writing the introduction and, and and thinking about his work, it struck me in many ways how he how he anticipated so much of the graphic design that would follow. He wrote that particular book very early in his career. He was considered a real, you know, wunderkind, kind of a real um, prodigy, uh, became well-known when he was sort of just a kid in his uh, late 20s and early 30s. And so his career ended up spanning, you know, the pre-war world of American advertising from the 30s to the 40s into uh, publishing in the 50s and 60s. And finally, he became known as kind of the quintessential designer, graphic designer for corporations in the latter part of his career. And so he spans, you know, his work kind of combined the uh, intensely personal and a quest for the universal. He had this knack for combining um, the coolness of European modernism with this sort of, uh, I think, American sort of wit and casualness. And I think in a way, although um, as a former student, you can testify to the fact that he could be a, uh, you know, a stern teacher and uh, quick with uh, criticism and impatient with people who uh, he didn't think were doing the work or were capable of doing the work. He managed all along to retain this warmth in his work that I think can be very elusive today where so much of the stuff we do is uh, destined to kind of have merely digital manifestations and the normal tools that a graphic designer would have to convey warmth, use of materials and things like that is something we're deprived of. You know, there's lessons in, in his work for people who aren't going to design ever a poster or a brochure or a book cover, but instead are just figuring out ways to engage other human beings in the form of digital interactions or virtual interactions, and I think Rand has lessons for them. What people tend to not remember about him was that he was so unbelievably smart. I mean, it was an intelligence that penetrated everything he did. After he died, his library went to Yale, and the books that Yale didn't want ended up at the Brattle Street Bookshop in Boston, and I happened to be there about a week later, and I remember going through these books, and he annotated everything. I mean, catalogs about Robert Motherwell and books on Judaic history and, of course, you know, lots of things on design, books on film. He was constantly questioning what he did based on what he saw and what he wrote. And I was just this morning looking through the, the wonderful Fiden monograph that Steve Heller did on Rand that came out a number of years ago. And the, the work doesn't date. But one of the reasons the work doesn't date, I think, is because you, you get the sense as you go through it that he was always looking. I mean, you can see yeah, these yeah. vestiges of influence of what he saw at MoMA or what he saw at the theater. And I mean, that Dubonnet stuff, that crazy characters, the, the yeah. drawings he did for IBM where he was really, he wrote this whole long treatise for IBM about the role of stripes as counterfeiting maneuvers and also as, as something that represents the fidelity of the American spirit because it was like the flag. I mean, this was a deep thinker. And then the other thing that I was thinking as you were talking, Michael, is that that warmth, that sort of sometimes cartoony, sometimes sweet, the children's books, the color palette, I wonder, and this may be a stretch, but I wonder if the fact that he always worked at home 
Mm, and he yeah, always yeah. kind of had to come home and kind of look at himself in the mirror and just be, you know, dad at home and husband at home and the guy who lived in Western Connecticut. This wasn't somebody who was trolling the floors in a big high-rise building in New York City, even though those were where his clients were. He was really just making work. And the work responded to the books and it responded to the music he was listening to. It responded to his travels. And, you know, he was working up until his, his last weeks of life. I, I recall hearing from someone, it may have been Steve Heller, that he was faxing sketches from the hospital. He just, you know, he just kept working till he dropped. Yeah, and, he, and I think, um, you know, that model of working, which um, when I arrived in New York as a new graduate from a design school looking for a job, me and my friends all basically were looking for jobs in offices surrounded by receptionists, other designers, you know, bosses, supervisors, phones ringing, clients, things like that. And I remember thinking, you know, that was, that was sort of the, 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 the premise upon which the business of design inevitably had to rest. And today, you know, I think that that premise is completely irrelevant. You know, anyone with a laptop computer, some pieces of software, and access to the Internet can really conduct an amazing practice from wherever they sit and do it in a way that's very personal, that's based on choices that they make, who they want to work with, what kind of work they want to do. And you're exactly right. Rand managed through decade after decade to sort of provide a model for that. You know, his his prerequisite for working with a uh, a client was he had to work directly with the decision maker. He's completely notoriously <laughs> impatient with, you know, account executives, you know, middlemen, uh, client handlers, people who would either interpret market his research, market focus research, groups. all this stuff. Yeah. He did all that stuff. Yeah. And then it, he used to write these these Bibles, these books. I mean, I know now we do style guides and so forth, but he would write these things that explain the philosophy and the sort of the heart and the soul behind a design decision. And so to come back to something you said a few minutes ago about things being done not just for designers, his work really spoke to a much broader audience because he was able to write and because he read so much and because he drew his references from things outside the canon. Yeah, and he was largely self-taught and never stopped teaching himself, evidently. I mean, your account of uh, discovering uh, the books from his library up in Boston is testimony to that. And uh, if you read any of his books, they're filled with references to uh, uh, to art, to literature, to things that were all just really hard-won. He studied design, studied art on his own, but clearly, you know, he found his own way. Again, in a way that I think is a remarkable model for any student today. And a timeless model. And a timeless model. I mean, any yeah. student today has the access to uh, to a whole world of resources and materials. And the only thing that inhibits you from exploring all of it is just the capacity you have for curiosity, basically. And his capacity just appeared to have been ravenous, right? Right. And so I think there's tons of antiquated models for how you can do design business that are based on international consortiums and holding companies that have all kinds of interlocking things. And I think, uh, again, again, designers kind of come back to that model of just kind of, you know, one person, one brain working through a problem and trying to be empathetic to what their audience is going to be looking for, trying to muster a whole universe of experiences and references and influences to bring to bear on how do I actually communicate this one thing, achieve this one thing right now. Rand was in many ways the master of that, and he was the master of it in, you know, 1935, 1945, 55, 65, all the way up to, uh, uh, you know, to the last, you know, days of his life, I would say. And it's just as relevant in 2015. Absolutely. 
So that's the observatory. We're a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com, and you can find out more about the What Design Sounds Like Symposium at wdsl.designobserver.com. The Thesis Book Project is a joint initiative between Design Observer and blurb.com. You can find out more about the Thesis Book Project at thesisbookproject.com. Between episodes, keep up with designers over on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of this show, and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time, please tell us. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. A big shout-out thank you to our wonderful sponsor, MailChimp, for sponsoring The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. See you at the symposium.